This message comes from NPR sponsor Dave's Killer Bread, and they're ready to rock the bread aisle. Dave's Killer Bread is a leading organic bread for a reason, killer taste, texture, and nutrition. This isn't bread. This is Bread Amplified. Hey, it's Guy here with some really exciting news. We are launching a brand new How I Built This fellowship. Now, we've done this in the past few years to help support the next generation of entrepreneurs working to build a better world. And this year, we're taking it to the next level. We're going to pick 10 fellows. Each fellow will get matched to an amazing mentor, attend virtual workshops with some of the entrepreneurs who've been on the show, and even have a chance to be interviewed by me. And each fellow will then have an opportunity to pitch their business idea to a panel of amazing judges, including some of our favorite How I Built This founders. And guess what? One winner will be selected to receive a $50,000 no-strings-attached grant. $50,000! Amazing, right? If you are an early-stage entrepreneur looking to make the world a little bit better and want to find out how to apply to become an HIBT fellow, visit summit.npr.org fellows for more details. And remember, the deadline is March 31st. The How I Built This Fellows program, including an NPR grant to one select fellow, is supported by GoDaddy. Rules apply. Did you sit down and say, okay, this is the strategy. We're going to create a travel business and we're going to do all these different things. Or do the things that eventually happen kind of just happen haphazardly? No strategy at all. I never really wanted to look in the book and say, oh, now you have a COO. Now you have a CFO. I don't even know what that stuff is until it becomes apparent, oh, we need a guy to do this. And then they go, yeah, that's called a a, a CFO. (laughs) We're just kind of going, oh, that's why they have that. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, how Rick Steves backpacked around Europe on bread and jam and a few dollars a day and turned his passion for no-frills travel into a $100 million brand. Giving your products away for free doesn't sound like a winning business strategy. In fact, it's one reason why most regional newspapers in America collapsed when media first went digital. Because at the dawn of the internet age, most newspapers made their content available online for free. And lots of subscribers wondered, why am I paying when I could just read it on the internet for nothing? It's an old truism. Once you start to give away your core product, people don't place as much value on it. Except when that truism is false. Like, remember a few years ago we had an episode about the rapper Logic and his manager Chris Zeru? Logic spent the first several years of his career giving his music away for free. Free downloads online. But that free music made its way into the hands of a small and loyal following people who would pay to see Logic perform those songs at a venue. And over time, that following grew until thousands of people would turn out to see him live. And when Logic finally released his first major label album in 2014, 
after years of giving his music away, the record shot right to the top of the charts. This approach is actually how Rick Steves created a $100 million travel business. Rick has spent much of his career giving away travel tips, information, videos, and audio tours for free. But his brand is so trusted, considered so authentic by millions of people, that his travel guides are among the best-selling of all time. And before the pandemic hit, 30,000 people a year went on tours organized by his company, called, not surprisingly, Rick Steves Europe. And Rick's done this by being, well, himself, a super nerdy, super earnest tour guide who visits popular sites around Europe on the cheap. His public television show is so recognizable that Rick's up there with PBS icons like Big Bird or Bob Ross or LeVar Burton or Arthur the Aardvark. And what's remarkable about Rick's story is he never planned on building a huge business. He caught the travel bug as a 14-year-old when he tagged along with his parents on a business trip to Europe. Rick mainly grew up in the town where he still lives, Edmonds, Washington. As kids, he and his sisters spent a lot of time camping with their parents and being active members of the Lutheran Church. We'd go to church, not every Sunday, and uh, I do remember it was kind of embarrassing. We'd go to church, and then after communion, we would we would go up there and have our the wine and the and the wafer, and then we would, as a family, we would walk straight out of the church. It's like, thank you, that was tasty, and then we'd walk to the car and we'd go camping. Um, and uh, it was like that was when I think back on it kind of a, a, a not a very polite way to, to go to church. But, um, you know, my, my parents were um, juggling a lot of things, and they, they wanted to have their cake and have their communion and, and vacation, too. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, we, we grew up. Um, I mean, now I'm, I love the whole Lutheran style of Christianity. Um, but back then it was just, um, you know, it's who your parents and your grandparents were. So, you know, we, we were Lutherans. Yeah. Tell me a, a little bit about your parents. I know that your dad was, oh, they had like a, a, a piano repair and import, importing mm-hmm. store in Edmonds. Tell me tell me about that. Yeah, my dad was a piano tuner. He was the go-to guy in Seattle for, for concert pianists and so on. And uh, an old German guy said, uh, Steve, you should import the finest pianos in the world from Germany. So my dad thought, well, that's interesting. And uh, he went to the piano fair in Frankfurt and made connections with the great piano makers. And uh, he decided to import pianos. Hmm. And I remember when I was a kid, that was just, um, that was what, what we were all excited about. I, I couldn't step into a, a, a home without lifting up the fallboard and seeing what the name was on the above the keyboard for that piano. And, um, you know, I knew the Beatles played a Blutner, and uh, each piano has a different personality. Even to this day, you know, I, I, I can't go into a, a building in Europe when I'm traveling if I see a piano without checking out the name of it, or I squint to see, you know, at the on the, on the TV special, what piano did that person play? And presumably you you played piano. You grew up taking lessons. Oh, I had to. I mean, it was that wasn't an option. Um, and uh, uh, it's interesting. My dad made me play the piano. My mom wasn't musical. You know, so that was a big part of my childhood. And uh, I remember one day um, I came from home from school and my dad said, son, we're going to Europe to see the piano factories. And I thought, dad, that's a silly idea. But uh, it was actually the, the big, what opened up my world. So age 14, your parents take you to Europe for this trip. And this this trip really, I guess, 
was like a, was revelatory, right? Like, you, you, do, what what do you remember about how that trip made you think about the world? I mean, you're only 14, so you're still a kid. Yeah, my very first moments over there, I remember just stepping out of the hotel on my very first morning in the Netherlands, and there was a stop sign in front of this little town in the Netherlands, and. Uh, all the people had bicycles with, with racks on the front of the bicycles, and in every rack there was a set of wooden shoes. And they're all pedaling out to the farm where they were going to work in the farm with their wooden shoes for a practical purpose. Not for tourism, but because you needed wooden shoes to, to walk around in the soggy bog. I mean, were you were you curious and excited about everything you saw, or were you, were, were you more like a typical 14-year-old kid where you were kind of bored with some of the museums and things no, like was, that? At first, I didn't want to go. I was a 14-year-old with a bad attitude. And then I got over uh-huh. there, and I've always navigated... I, I navigated childhood with a pragmatic understanding that things go better if you're not fighting your parents, hmm. you know. And I just thought, okay, I'm going to make the best of this. And then I was uh, always into stuff. I remember I had no money at all, but I was collecting things. I would collect bottle caps because in Europe, hmm. when you have a bottle cap, it says what city it was uh, bottled in. So I'd have all these uh, exotic bottle caps, beer or soft drinks, with where it was bottled, and I collected that. I collected hmm. matchbooks. I collected sugar cubes. Uh, you know, and I, I also was a businessman. I would, uh, guy. It's it's kind of when I think back on it, funny because I found the the most incredible business for a fourteen year old because I was a coin collector. Coins hmm. sold in Seattle in the sixties, foreign coins for three cents a piece. You know, in, hmm. in the in the coin markets, uh, if it was a German coin or a Norwegian coin, so I could buy fifty two Groschen coins for a nickel and bring them home and sell them for three cents each. That is a markup, man. There is a, a photograph of you. It's you, your mom, your dad, and I think a, a little sister. Mm-hmm. And um, you are, you've got shaggy, long hair and big glasses, and it's a photo of your family in Europe. And this was, I guess, 1969, the oh, summer of 69. Are we looking out a window? I think that's, yeah. That was my mom and my dad and a, a, a piano salesman who took care of us from Bersendorfer in Vienna. And an, an old man we met, and it was Sunday, and we went to this little village, and uh, we dropped in on the church, and after the, the mass, everybody, it just felt like it was an old Wild West scene. Everybody was wearing hmm. black and top hats and long mustaches, and everybody walked across the dusty square, past the fountain, over to the wine garden. And hmm. they would have, drink their wine, and they would uh, smear lard on rustic bread, and uh, and tell stories, and it was multi-generational. And to me, that was that was probably one of the eye-opening things that I thought this world is is just inviting me to to open up to it and explore. And and I remember this old guy; he looked like a caricature out of some um, silent movie. Uh, he had a big handlebar mustache and a fancy carved pipe, and um, he was telling stories about how he witnessed the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in 1914 hmm. that kicked off World War One. And um, he was old enough to have witnessed it, and I was just wide-eyed. And I was right on the border of uh, the the communist world, right there between Austria and Hungary. And uh, oh, gee, it was it was uh, it was a, it was a cauldron. It was a whirlpool <laughs> of culture and history. And had my parents not taken me to Europe, you know, I, I just would have not had that dimension to my world. And of course, that was just the the first of what would be many more, like like dozens more uh, trips to Europe. Yeah. And um, I remember on the the next trip to Europe, I was in a, 
in the train station in Copenhagen, going between the piano factories in Germany and the relatives in Norway. And I saw these backpackers. And this was back in a time when literally a 16-year-old kid in the United States could be on his mother's passport. My, I didn't have a passport. My mom had a passport with two photographs on it. It was her and her son. So this I was is second. This is a second family. This trip. This is the second trip. Yeah, two years later, mm-hmm. and I was mm-hmm. sixteen. So I don't know. That would have been tenth, eleventh grade or something. And um, I remember I was in the in the train station with my parents, and I saw these kids. This was a really a eureka moment for me because I was literally legally chained to my mom to travel yeah. with her passport. Right. And then I saw these kids with backpacks with the European equivalent of a Eurail pass, an interrail pass. And they were free as the wind, and they had no parents in sight. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at the destination board uh, in that old-fashioned Copenhagen train station, which, me, which to me is sort of, a, it's sort of almost a mecca of, of travelers to go into these tra- old train stations. Yeah, and, and, and I see at the, the, board. The, the letters flipping. Right? Yeah, those the letters board. flipping. Yeah. Ticket, 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 and it's going to... Berlin or Stockholm or Amsterdam. And I saw those kids. And I looked over at my mom and dad and I thought, I don't need you guys for this. The world can be my (laughs) playground. And I vowed right then in the Copenhagen train station that I would go back to Europe every year after I graduated from high school. And I have. So that was quite a commitment, quite a, a vision. And I didn't have any intention of making a business out of it. This is just what I did in the summer. It was just fun. So the day, I guess, the, like the day after your, you graduated high school, this is 1973, you did. You went on a, a solo, or, or you went with a friend, I guess, yeah. um, to Europe. Yeah. You were 18, right? Yeah. And you were there pretty much all summer traveling around yeah. Europe. That was a hardcore trip. That was the best trip of my life. And uh, I wanted to go to Europe. I was, gonna, I was hell-bent on going to Europe. And my parents said, um, well, you got to have a buddy to go with you. And, uh, and they said, you got to send home postcards. So if you disappear, we know where you are and we can come and find you. And how did you, uh, how did you pay for it? How, how did you, how did you have the money to do that? I, I remember I used to, I had a, um, I had a jar on the mantle in my parents in in our home, and it said, "Send a poor boy to Europe." <laughs> and, and, and every time guests would come over, they would, uh, I would try to, you know, beg a little money. But I was a piano teacher, and I, I was making good money as a piano teacher. I mean, I think I made. Six dollars for a half-hour lesson, and that was really good money. Um, but back then, you could go to Europe really cheap. You could you could fly to Europe for a few hundred dollars. You could get a year hmm. rail pass, a student year rail pass for I think it was two hundred and fifty dollars. And we lived on on three or four. I mean, there was no five dollars a day. We lived on like three dollars a day. Wow. And, um, I mean, that was that was a time where the, the, one of the most famous guidebooks for Americans was was Arthur Frommer's yeah. Europe on five dollars yeah. a day. Yeah, we had and, that. And you yeah. and were you living? You were living on that, or even less than that? Oh, we were a living day? on less than that. Yeah. I mean, how I've, do you live on? I, I mean, nineteen seventy three. I get it. It's a but. How do you live on less than five dollars a day in Europe, even in nineteen seventy three? You know, Guy, I've got the journals for this. I was a a, a journal writing fiend. I wrote every day, even when I was 14 years old, uh, what the weather was like, how much money I had in my my money belt, um, you know, what food I ate. And uh, I can trace every day I was in Europe for every year and until I got wrapped up in my business much later when I didn't have the energy, the bandwidth to do that. And, you know, when I was 18, my buddy Gene and I, we would have a game. Would see how many hours we could go without spending any money. I mean, when we were sightseeing, if it, we'd go right up to the door, and if it cost, we'd find a way to sneak in the back door, and we would we would visit it. We would buy a single room in a hotel, and I'd sleep on the floor. <laughs> I would once a week. We'd put all of our money on the bed, 
and we'd count up the money, and we'd divide how many days we had left, and we'd say, oh, no, we've, we're slipping down below $2 a day. We've got to really tighten up. Um, and then we went home after that trip with no money, and we went from the Frankfurt Youth Hostel out to the airport on an expired rail pass. It was frightening. I, the conduct, we were really good at stowing away on boat, on, on trains and boats, and, uh, and the conductors were coming from either end of the train, and we knew we were just going to the suburban airport. So, you know, they were, it was like two collapsing walls with those spikes on it, like in Batman <laughs> yeah. and yeah. our Superman. And um, they, they were coming closer and closer on the left and the right. And we were just, let's get to the airport. And just in time, we got to the airport, the door opened, and we popped out um, before the conductor. <laughs> before they could see your expired rail yeah. passes. And uh, it was, and I came home and I was, I was sick. I was what the doctor called chronically undernourished or chronically fatigued. Because and you were not eating I w- while you were on this trip? I had no sense of um, nutrition. I would eat bread and jam. We had a one of our theme songs, Kodachrome, was a big hit that year by Paul Simon. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that. Mm. You know. Can I sing it? I'll sing you the little, if I can remember yeah. it. <laughs> but, um, Mama, don't take my Kodachrome yeah. away. So it was, yeah, 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 that's sure. right. So it was like... Um, when I think back on all the crap I ate in Europe, it's a wonder <laughs> I am here at all. Although my lack of good nutrition never hurt me none, I got maggots on my stomach wall. Oh my Bread and jam. <laughs> you know, I we went over there, and, and uh, I often think back, why was that trip so great? And that trip was so great because it was a challenge, because every penny mattered, because everything was new, because we were totally on our own. And uh, it was just the beautiful part of growing up. I remember that feeling, too, because I traveled around Europe in, in around 19, 20 years old. And, and that feeling when you, when you do that on your own and you yeah. had to make all these choices and decisions and, and you do, you, you come back a changed person. It's, it's, it really yeah. is transformational. Yeah. And uh, even as a teenager, I, I was aware of that. And, uh, you know, I often think if the world was smart, they would establish a fund and give every American kid a little gap year trip. And it seems extravagant, but it'd be a small price to pay to get Americans out of their home and into the rest of the world and realize this world's a beautiful place and it's worth uh, being part of. Yeah. You know, if you grew up in the United States, you think the world's a pyramid with the United States on top and everybody else trying to figure it out. And you get over there and you realize, no, uh, they, they like their style of life and they've got, they've got different dreams. They, mm-hmm. they don't have the American dream. They've got the, the Bulgarian dream. And, and these, are, these are revelations I had as a teenage traveler that are still integral to the talks that I give today. So you, you take that trip and you come back to, to Edmonds and you start college. You go to the University of Washington. And what was your, I mean, at that point, you're still, you know, young, 18, 19, 20. But did you have, did you start to think, um, you know, here's what I'll do with my life? Like, what did you, what did you start to think you might do with your life? At that point, I, I just, I think I just was very happy to be a piano teacher. I mm-hmm. loved teaching piano. Um, I had a studio. So I was a little businessman. I had the studio next to my parents' piano store paid $200 a month for the rent. We had a recital hall where twice a year the kids would do their recitals, and I bought a coffee machine where I could actually serve coffee in styrofoam cups to all the parents. And it was just, for me, I was just like so happy to do that. And the kids wouldn't practice in the summer, so I'm just going to go to Europe. I'll see you in the fall. And life was going to be simple and sweet like that. And, um, and then I thought, well, I should get something practical, so I got a business degree also. So I got a history mm. degree for because I loved that and business degree because I thought it would be practical. Um, but I had no 
no thought about yeah. turning my my love of travel into a business. I but but then you know uh, things unfolded. I read that while you were still in college. Um, there was something called the Experimental College, which I think is still around. Which yeah. Some universities have it, and it's basically free classes for, for yeah. people in the community. And you started to uh, you start to offer a class called Travel Europe yeah. Cheap, yeah. Um, which I'm, I'm assuming this is free. You would just give yeah. these lectures for free? No, not quite, but almost. You know, C- a um, couple bucks. But or I something. mean, that was that was the turning point for me. It was huh. I was in the dorm, and I just. I love, when I look back on it, I just love um, teaching things I love. I teach piano and I teach sure. travel. Um, and um, I would spend a lot of time at lunch helping people plan their trips. And I was the local expert in the dorm. And I remember, you know, I remember I took a class about taking the hippie trail from Kathmandu to, uh, no, from Istanbul to Kathmandu. That was what the ultimate backpacker trip back You there. taught a class or you took no, a class? No, no, I took the class. And you this took guy, it. I was oh. going to do this trip. And and I, there's no good information back then. Today we have a glut of information, but back then, you know, you just didn't have much information. This guy had information. I signed hmm. up for his class, and there was like 15 of us there dreaming about, you know, just you know, just like wide-eyed. He's done this trip from Istanbul hmm. to Kathmandu over Khyber Pass, you know. Yeah. And, um, and we sat there, and he was just too cool for school. He just didn't prepare. He didn't care about our trip. He had the information, but he didn't give it to us. And it really, it really frustrated me. Hmm. And at that moment, I realized if somebody has travel experience and other people need it, it's wrong not to be well-organized and, and share it in an in a artful, careful, hmm. practical way. And I thought, you know, I could do the same thing and I could really help people. So I put together this class and it was, I just, it was sort of a lark, you know, it's just this goofy college where people teach you how to fix your bike or how to build a log cabin or how to forage and eat snails and mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. And and um, I was teaching a class called European Travel Cheap. And I remember, I'm not going to mince words. This is European Travel Cheap. That's all it is, how we're going to afford to go to Europe. And hmm. um, it was a six-Wednesday class or something like that. And I, I thought I'd get 20 kids from the dorm signing up. I had 100 of their parents signing up. And um, I, I just remember... Holy cow! I've I've struck hmm. something here. There's these are not the students; these are the parents. And I I left the dorm. I'm, I was trying to be very efficient. I knew it would cost eight dollars for the class, and I thought, okay, I better. And t- I don't want to have a, a backlog because of lack of change, you know. Yeah. So I went. I remember I actually went to the class with with like a hundred two dollar bills, <laughs> and oh, I, came home, I came home. I came home with a uh, hundred times uh, eight eight hundred dollars uh, wow. in tens and twenties. And I, for me, as a as a kid in the dorm, eight hundred dollars that paid for my my flight and my rail pass for next summer's trip. And by the way, Rick, what how how detailed were you going into in these classes? Was it like here's how you get to Europe, here's where you stay, here's or or was it? You I would know, sit. Yeah, I, I would sit on a on a table facing the group in the in the in the classroom, and I had a slideshow. I had my slide projector, and I showed slides. And I, I remember I could. Uh, it was too, after a while it got, I, I mean, I was teaching all the time. I was just a teaching maniac. I would teach all Saturday. I would give the, sure. that six-week course in a one Saturday session because people from out of, out, of, out of town wanted to take it and they couldn't come every Wednesday night. So they would drive in and, and I would um, teach it from nine till five with an hour break for lunch. And I could keep a hundred people into a packed little hotel ballroom all day long um, giving my talk and... Um, 
and it was I got better and better at it, hmm. and, I, and I experimented with the delivery uh, time after time, how I would teach this and how I'd get the points across, and eventually, um, my uh, uh, my mom's sister, my aunt, said, "You should write a book." And I thought, that's so stupid. And then I, uh, but then I thought, well, wait a minute, I've already written the book by giving this talk over and over and over. Huh. And uh, I just sat down and, and gave my lecture to the paper. And there it was, the first edition of Europe Through the Back Door. In, in, essentially, you, you, when you say you gave your lecture to the paper, you were just kind of talking out loud and typing it out? Yeah. I think I even hand wrote it or something. But it was just my lecture. I mean, because I had given that lecture. And for me, giving the, t- the giving the talk is 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 uh, recreation. It's how are you going to um, how are you going to design these ideas and get it across, and how are you going to illustrate it, and uh, you know you're going to talk about uh, uh, bed and breakfasts, and how did that relate to youth hostels, and what about sleeping on the train, and uh, finding cheap free free places to sleep, and and whatever. And after each at the beginning of each class, I had everybody write on a piece of paper their fears and apprehensions, and I would mm. survey. For a long time, I would survey the class in the first night, and what are your fears and apprehensions? And I really got good at knowing what people's fears and apprehensions what, what were. What were they afraid of? Oh, they're afraid of the language barrier. They're afraid of yeah. not finding a room. They're afraid of uh, you know getting diarrhea. They're afraid of pickpockets. They're afraid of oh, how do I how do I use my traveler's checks properly? Um, so you know, and I just would have all of these issues that I would just bing bing bing. So you you took your your lecture essentially. And you typed it up into into a book that that you called Europe through the back door. And did you did you structure the book in just a you know clear way? It was like country by country. Is that how you organized it? In the beginning, the book was two halves. It was like two books bound together. The first half was all the skills: hmm. packing, hotels, eating, transportation, communication, you name it. And then the last half were. Individual chapters on my 20 favorite discoveries. These are the back doors. So I didn't need to write a guidebook to Paris or to Ireland. Hmm. I just need to share my discoveries. And um, for a long time, I kind of almost prided myself in not having to bog down on, you know, phone numbers mm-hmm. and prices and hours and that kind of stuff. I just wrote creative articles to turn people onto my favorite corners, the south coast of Portugal, mm. Dingle Peninsula in Ireland, Arrow Island up in Denmark, uh, you know, the Mosul River Valley instead of the Rhine for your castles in Germany. And did you did you get it formally published? Did you, I mean, did you start to distribute to bookstores? Well, tell me what, what the book looked like and, and how, how you made that happen. The book looked so simple that once it was already sold, people when I tried to get publicity, they thought it was a pre-publication edition. They would say, when's the book coming out? <laughs> this is the book. It was a very well, simple thing. I didn't know what an I- Was it self-published, by the way? It was self-published. I didn't know what an ISBN was, so it didn't have an ISBN, which was stupid. Um, you but, Xerox um, the pages and staple them together? My girlfriend typed it for me. My, my roommate uh, was an artist. He... I gave him the uh, photographs that I, I and he sketched them really nicely, wow. and and then it was a time when you type and you you correct by typing it on another piece of paper with a glue stick. You then uh, <laughs> you 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 glue that strip over the yeah. the line that has the mistake. Yeah. So it was a lovingly put together pile of a uh, hundred and eighty pages, and I took it up to the publisher with and I dug up all my money mm-hmm. and it would cost a couple thousand dollars and I got a couple thousand books. Uh, came back a few weeks later, picked them up in my Oldsmobile station wagon, drove home. And now I had the first self-published wow. edition of Rick Steve's Europe Through the Back Door. And then after that, I finally got a publisher, which uh, was a blessing. And how much were you charging for the book in that, in that first year? 
I think it was four ninety five. And so you were just hawking them yourself. You were oh, you yeah. were going into and, bookstores and and saying, "Hey, I've got these books," or you were going to giving yeah. lectures and and offering yeah. the book for sale. And then I would have the books in my car, and it was literally the books in the back of my car, and. I remember a few occasions I was giving a talk and, oh, no, you can't sell anything on the premises here. Okay. After the talk, I'd say, if you want to buy the book, I'll be out of my car. <laughs> and it's just five bucks, you know, and, and then it's just bam, 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 selling like hotcakes. And uh, and I got to the point where I would get bigger and bigger classes and I would sell the book for, and the book got bigger and bigger and bigger, but I kept it at $5 for a long time just because I wanted to move those books. And I, I knew, though, that my audience was my parents' age for, for many years. Now I'm older, so I I don't have audience that's my parents' age anymore. <laughs> but um, in the beginning, I was always thinking, I'm talking to my parents and their friends. And when you were, you know, leading these lectures and talking about going to Europe, I mean, were you just saying, look, you can do this. I don't speak French, German, Dutch. Yeah. You can you can get a little guidebook. You can make your, you know, you can make it work. I, I think that's part of my, um, how I was successful. Part of my appeal is I'm not a scholar. You know, I mispronounce the words. I, I don't know how to... I don't say Paris, you know. Um, I say Paris. Um, I speak only English. You know, remember I was interviewing my students. That was a fear and apprehension. I don't speak the language. Hmm. And I tell them, well, neither do I. And I write guidebooks. I make TV shows. I lead tours. Hmm. And I have great vacations going to Portugal. So I, I have to imagine, after you publish Europe Through the Back Door, self-published, that for, I think the first edition came out in 1980. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, I'm assuming that it was clear to you because you had you had established a business, right? You you called it Europe through the back door like a few years earlier. It was like a yeah. you, you probably filed an LLC, but I, it's not clear to me that you thought this was still going to be the way you were going to make a living up until yeah. 19- I don't know what, what I, I I don't know if I filed anything. I, I'm kind of laughing at that because okay. I, I was I was so um, klutzy then. I was just having fun teaching and selling books out of the back of my car when I had books to sell, but. You know, when I think back on it, friends and loved ones and relatives give me these ideas, and my my gut response is, "No, oh, that's crazy." And then hmm. I think about it, and it's actually a great idea. And a good friend of my parents, uh, Patty Price, said, "You should take bus tours around." And I just thought that sounds horrible. And then I thought, God, there's huge efficiency in sharing the rental cost of a minibus. Mm. And I'd love to, um, you know, I'd love to help organize people's trip plans uh, at the table and the dormitory over lunch. And I'd love to take people around Europe on these minibus tours. And so I, I, you know, I was giving these talks and it was very easy to um, talk to people who were enamored with me because of my fun uh, stories I could tell about traveling. They, you know, it was kind of natural. They would, they'd be interested in traveling with me if I made that possible. And I did. And the, the minibus, there was no, there was no promises. The, the minibus tours were like, it was like a commune on wheels. It was it was not profitable except to cover my costs so I could yeah. stay over there longer. And, um, you know, um, everybody had to almost sign a little agreement that says they wouldn't um, complain about the lousy accommodations. It was so upfront. So you, you would basically, would you drive the bus? Yeah, I drove the bus. It was just, that was a beautiful formula. When people want to get into the travel business and make some money, I say, you know, I think the best thing is just to have a forte. Just, you know, you are uh, 
you know, you are Mr. Um, uh, Scandinavia or you are Mr. Baja or Mr. Yeah. Baja, California, and just do that specialty with eight people on a minibus. And uh, the economy of uh, sharing a, a vehicle with eight people is wonderful. The fact that you don't have to take care of uh, a driver and a guide, but the driver can be the guide is wonderful. Hmm. And uh, that's that was kind of my original formula there. And this worked really well at the time. I was I would actually have a day where I would announce my my minibus tour plans for the next year, and I would give the talk. I, I would I would say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna explain the tours, and then I'll take deposits for the tours on that day. And I'd have you know four or five tours that I would do with the minibus. I was always the guide and the driver. And that night, all those tours would be full. They would sell out. They would sell out that one night. And it was like, what, 10 or 12 people per, per tour? Eight people per tour. It was usually 22 days. Back then, I only did 22-day tours. I was on a one-man crusade to help Americans have a longer vacation. I was just amazed that we put up with such short vacations. And so it was 22 days in Britain, 22 days in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. Uh, it's funny because now, you know, 40 years later, it's evolved where that's way too long for the American market. And uh, the longest yeah. tour is 20 days and our best-selling tours are 10 or 12 days. So I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to picture this. I mean, you are like in your late 20s, you're offering these minibus tours of, with eight people mm-hmm. and it's you're driving the minibus and you're the guide. Mm-hmm. And you only speak English. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a lot to take on. Like, you didn't have a local guide with you. It was just you and eight yeah. people. Oh, yeah. And I, I didn't have the um, sophistication or the appreciation of a local guide or the or the money for a local guide. So hmm. we were just bumbling around together. You know, I remember we <laughs> we would do the craziest things. We'd, we'd go through the... The, there's an oak forest where Admiral Nelson used to get his masts for his ships in southern Wales. I forget the name of the forest of something, very romantic. And we would take turns sitting up on the top of the bus on the on the luggage rack and a couple of people up on the top of the luggage rack just so they could look up at the oak forest as we rolled through it slowly. Uh, uh, you know, every night we'd in the youth hostel, we'd pull out the map and debate. We would actually debate what we're going to do the next day. And this was a formative time for me as a tour organizer because, again, I was learning what the market yeah. wanted. I was learning how many... How many hill towns can a mortal tour find worth climbing up? Uh, how many yeah. Madonnas and children can a mortal tourist um, be excited about? Uh, I don't. After a while, it doesn't matter if it's Raphael's greatest. They're going to stay in the bus and, and sure. do something else because they're burned out on Madonnas and children. It's interesting. It's. I, I remember. Um, this is this business kind of philosophy. I think of mine. I would have the handbooks for those tours laying around in my lectures. And um, the handbooks were designed so people could be independent in the context of the tour. That was There was always this focus Everybody on Everybody got a handbook who, yeah, who joined the tour. That's right, yeah. And time and time again, and, and I was so so impressed by how honest my, my, my students were in these classes I gave. I never checked ID for checks when people were giving me any money for anything, and, and I just didn't need to. They're just great people. But they were stealing this book, these books, and I, I thought, uh. these tour handbooks are driving decent people to theft. They need to be available <laughs> for sale. So the next year is sort of a radical thing to do. 
I put everything I knew about doing the tour in the handbook for the tour, intending to give people the information necessary so they could do the Rick Steves tour without Rick Steves. They could buy the book for five bucks and do it on their own. And some people said, oh, you're giving away all your secrets. No, it was a great thing because it turned people onto the tours and it opened up my teaching to people that wouldn't take the tours anyway. And then I could stand in front of these groups of people who were taking my class for free and say, I don't care, you can take my tour or you can buy this book and do the tour without me. But just do it and do it right. When did you start to think of yourself as the real deal? Because I think a lot of people, including myself, have had and sometimes still have imposter syndrome. We, we're like, how do people listen to me? When did, when did you start to think, God, I, I'm not an expert, but... but Right. Well, you, you kind of you grow into it. Yeah. I, I remember a big breakthrough for me was Arthur Fromer. I mean, he was the granddad of all this. He's the guy that, that, that inspired the, the uh, democratization of, of uh, international travel, you know. Europe on $5 a day, right? His classic book. Yeah. And I was just a kid. And, and uh, I mean, I must have been right after I self-published my book. And, and he, I didn't even know he knew who I was. He, he had me fly all the way to New York and be on his radio show. And, wow. Or, or it was a TV show, I think, maybe. And uh, he's, he put his, he, you know, he kind of effectively put his arm around me and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like you to meet the next Temple Fielding, Eugene Fodor, and Stephen Birnbaum of the travel publishing world. Wow. Those were the big household words in the 50s and 60s. Fielding guides, Fodor guides, Birnbaum guides. And eventually, I mean, you would do, you would, you know, do your own, like, Rick Steves guides because you'd get a a publisher and and start publishing them. But, I mean, for a while, I guess you were, you were pretty much hawking that, the first book on your own, right? Yeah. And it was, uh, there was sort of this, it was like this big business that was just a little kernel and it was just ready mm-hmm. to burst out because there was such a market for it if it was um, designed and, and uh, what do you call scaled up properly. What about your um, personal life? Were you, were you married at, at that point in, in, in the 1980s? Yes, I was married. I forget. I, I remember I was, my class was Wednesday nights and I got married on a, on a Saturday and a Sunday, of course. Uh, so I remember giving a talk one Wednesday and saying, I'm going to get married this weekend. <laughs> that whole next week was dedicated to getting married. And then the next Wednesday, I was back uh, in the University of Washington giving the wow. experimental college class. So uh, I guess that's a little indication that I was uh, focused on my business quite a lot. I And my wife was a very supportive and a beautiful partner for that period of my life. And uh, mm. then I got this uh, complexity, you know, of a growing family and kids and also a business that was just taken off, and, and my heart was in two places at the same time. And and sounds like it was still a regional business. It was still like Pacific Northwest, like Rick Steves is the, is the guy in the Pacific Northwest. I remember the day, um, I remember I was walking to the book, the book fair once in uh, San Francisco, and my publisher put his arm around me, and he said, Rick, if you're ever going to get anywhere, you got to have more titles, you know, because then I just had two or three titles. And I thought, oh, more titles, that sounds like a lot of work. And then I had to... Um, branch beyond that, you know, favorite places, essays and generic travel skills into specifics. Where are you going to sleep in in Brussels? Where are you going to eat in Copenhagen? Uh, You know, what time is the museum open in Dublin? And that was a lot of work and that was a big change, but that's what people wanted and that's what we could offer in in a unique Rick Steves kind of way. So then we embarked on all of making all of these guidebooks to different 
countries and different regions and ultimately different cities. But from 80 on, after I had the guidebook, the tour, the, the bus tours were, were funding the idealism of the business. Uh, I, then I started to get uh, people working with me. And mm. that was kind of a breakthrough. You know, you got a book, you got an idea, and you need to realize it's not a one-man show. When we come back in just a moment, how Rick went from selling books out of his car to hosting an incredibly popular TV show, and how that success and all the work that went with it would wind up taking a big toll on his family life. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Support for How I Built This comes from 3M, from helping drive vaccine and therapy development with advanced purification technologies to developing an adjuvant that helps boost vaccine effectiveness. The research scientists at 3M are delivering innovative healthcare solutions to help us today and prepare us to better tackle what's next. Learn more at 3M.com slash improving lives. 3M science applied to life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Checker. Want to diversify your workforce and change the future? Studies show that employment is the number one factor in reducing recidivism. Fair chance hiring provides a path to employment for 70 to 100 million qualified Americans. Choose Checker for fast, accurate, and fair background checks that give people a fair shot at their futures. Learn more at C-H-E-C-K-R dot com slash N-P-R. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So it's around 1991, and from his home in Edmonds, Washington, Rick Steves is running a pretty successful travel business, writing guidebooks and doing small tours of Europe for months at a time. And then comes a pretty important turning point. He starts making a TV show called Travels in Europe with Rick Steves. Tell me how that um, began. I mean, did you did you produ- find a production company and mm-hmm. and have them follow you through Europe? Did it had I mean, how did that idea even come about? You know, when I when you just said that, I'm just thinking I am such a reluctant. I'm sort of. In a way, I'm eager, and I'm just like an energizer bunny about all this. But in another way, I'm sort of like digging my heels in like a stubborn dog and saying, no, you know, some some loved one says, you should make tours and take people around in a minibus. No, and then I do that. And then somebody says, you should write a book. And I say, no. And then somebody, actually a whole bunch of people in the late 80s were coming to me and saying, you should make a TV show. Yeah. I thought, no way. But then I thought, these are smart people. And they've, you know, worked with other people, made shows. They've got a track record of success. And they see something in this. And I thought, well, I'll give it a whirl. Hmm. So the idea was uh, you'd make a a TV show where you'd be touring uh, cities in Europe and and kind of taking us with you on the journey. Uh, But how? I mean, how would you – like, how are you going to, like, finance it? What were you going to – Well, that was the trouble. I mean, everything I had done up until now had been – no finance necessary. I'm just, I'll give a free, gather 10 people together. I'm there all day giving you a talk, you know. But this was different because you had to have a funder. Uh, you had to, it's, it's, a, it's expensive. Production uh, company, it's, it's yeah. It's a huge investment of time. And and for me, it was an investment of time. Do I really want to take all that time away from researching my guidebooks and dedicate it to making TV shows where I'm not learning anything, you see. Yeah. When I'm researching, I'm learning. I'm 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 contributing. It's a, it's a huge... Uh, practical investment in my 
program of who I am as a travel teacher. Sure. The TV show, it takes six days to produce a half-hour TV show, and you learn nothing during that. I mean, I always thought, oh, I could learn while I'm there. No, it's just so all-consuming. You're just there waiting for the jackhammer to stop, trying to remember your lines, uh, waiting for the clouds to go away, and then <laughs> saying it, and then you go to the next place and you do it. And after six days, if all goes well, you have a show. But how did you find, I mean, how did you even begin the process? Did oh. you find a production company and then no, start to pitch the show? What, what did you do? No, I didn't want to do it. They found me. And I did it. This was a, a small as, production company called small, small World Productions. Small World Productions, yeah. And they were, a lot of people had been contacting me. There was this flurry of interest mm. in the late 80s. And I was skeptical and I felt like, well, I can actually play hard to get because I don't want to do this. Um, and uh, they were really smart, they had good people, and they knew what I did. They had they had been followers of mine. You know, they knew my program. They drank the Rick Steve syrup through the back door Kool-Aid and they wanted to share it on public television. And um, I said, okay, if you guys think you can do it, I'm, I'm with you. And I was basically a hired hand. I was the, I was the host. So they, they owned the, the whole thing yeah. and you, they hired you as the talent, let's say. Yeah. One of their friends had a, a, a few thousand dollars that he could be the funder. And right. we did a pilot. And it, I look at it now and it seemed kind of gawky. But at the time, it was, it was good enough to get the show off the ground. And, and, and what, you make a pilot and, and pitch the idea to, to public TV stations? Yeah, when you when you make a TV show for public television, you need a station to be your presenting station. Mm-hmm. And Seattle opted out for some reason, so Oregon took it up. And uh, Oregon Public Broadcasting, OPB, all over the country now, you know, 30 years later, people think I'm from Portland because uh-huh. my show gets the little <laughs> OPB jingle. And um, they presented it to the system, and a few channels picked it up. And uh, if it works well, there's a buzz, and other channels pick it up the next time around. Uh, but what that ended up doing was um, kicking off a series, and we did five series with Small World. Uh, and I remember it was expensive. Every dissolve was a, was a financial decision. I remember they yeah. had to go to an editing suite and just have right, an avid suite, right? Yeah, yeah. And a, a camera was hugely expensive. Now anybody can afford a camera, but back then, you, you took out a bank loan to have a camera. Yeah. So, so this was really, I mean, this production company, they had this idea. You were the face of it, but mm-hmm. it wasn't your. Wasn't mine. No. The only pay I was getting was. The exposure, I suppose, to the public hmm. and the chance to say, and he writes a guidebook. So at the end of the show, yeah. he writes a cool book. And if you like the show, you like the book, you buy that. And then Small World would make a little money. And I mean, that was that was kind of risky. I mean, a great risk because mm-hmm. you you were essentially giving them the IP. I mean, they were they owned the intellectual property yeah. of this. And, yeah. you, 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 you know, it could have worked entirely in their favor and not in your favor. I had no... No option. I mean, they were, they knew how to do it. I didn't. They had, I didn't have any capital. Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, it was, for me, it was an adventure. It was one of those things that if an opportunity comes along, say yes. You know, I had the energy and uh, it turned out to be frustrating because I wanted to be more than what they wanted me to be. You know, what did, could, what did they want you to be versus what you wanted you to be? They wanted me to be, uh, uh, an obedient host that would learn his lines and stay out of the way. And um, I had a teaching agenda. Uh, they had a uh, let's stay in business agenda, and I had a teaching agenda. So they wanted to produce shows that would be pleasant to watch and popular, mm. and I wanted to produce shows that would teach the Rick Steves style of travel. 
But, I mean, in 1991, you were not the kind of typical television host. You're, you know, you're, you've got this, you know, kind of nerdy, mm-hmm. earnest yeah. um, thing going. And, which, of course, today, that's, that's why people love you. But then, yeah. like, uh, you know, people were going for, like, the, you know, the deep, bassy voice. Like that, you know, yeah. that kind of. Yeah. So, uh, I, I mean, I'm just curious why they thought you were the guy. To, to be the yeah. face of travel. Well, if, if there wasn't public television, I don't think anybody else would have taken a look at me, but public television was the domain of, of the Bob Rosses and the, and the yeah. Mr. Rogers and the Rick Steves, I think. And we were all getting started back. Or we, were, we, were, we were doing it back then. We were part of the time. I look at it and I think, boy, that was dorky. Um, but it's me, it's honest, it's authentic, and it's, it's driven by a passion for travel. And we all were true blue for public television it was tough to be viable back then. I mean, the gear was expensive. The post-production was expensive. It was hard to get underwriting. And um, uh, it's just hard to have a... I've got a lot of friends now that are travel teachers that are trying to break through with a TV show on public television. I don't know how you do it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm very lucky that that I had the the breaks that I had way back then. I mean, the stations got it for free because you guys mm-hmm. were handling the underwriting yeah. and then and and you got some publicity and this yeah. turned you into a celebrity. Yeah. Like well, kind of quickly, right? You know, one thing I've had as a business sort of um value is be other people's cash cow. Hmm. If everybody is struggling, everybody is desperate to be viable from a business point of view and if all you are is your own cash cow, nobody's going to want to talk to you. But if yeah. you honestly are other people's cash cow, then you become a key player for all these organizations because you're making them money. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm a cash cow for my publisher. I do a lot of things for my publisher that while other writers just complain that their publishers don't promote them properly, I realize, no, I got to do my own song and dance and my publisher mm. appreciates that. And I pay for it, you know, um, and I, I, I benefit from it. And from a television yeah. point of view... I was Mr. Pledge Drive, right? right yeah. As soon as uh, I yeah, could. No. And you were I, raising I spent, money for stations all over the country. I was spending 20 days a year, 20 days on the road doing Pledge. And to this day, I mean, I just was talking to the people at public television a, a week or two ago, and they said nearly 20% of all the money that they raised in Pledge this last quarter was from my show. For the uh, whole system. <laughs> when, when did you first realize, because the show is, is, it debuts in 1991, and it's super fun to watch because it's so nerdy, and I love it. Yeah. I love it for that reason. It's so, I mean, it's really special. Um, when did you start, when did you first realize that people were recognizing you and they're going, hey, there's a, there's a guy from TV. Like, what, yeah. do you remember that yeah. feeling of when I that do. happened? Yeah, it was very, it was... Um, I remember the first time I ever saw somebody with my book in Europe. I remember the first time people started recognizing me from the TV show. And then the first time people from other the other hemisphere would know me from seeing the TV show in uh, YouTube and other streaming ways. But, uh, yeah, over time that became more and more of a, a deal. I, I remember coming into a into a, a, a youth hostel high in the Alps and I just checking for the guidebook information and dropping in and, and there was uh, the guy who ran the hotel said, oh, there's a Girl Scout group in the, in the dining room and they'd love to see you because they're here with your book. And I came in to the, I just interrupted their dinner and they'd just go, oh, there's the guy we saw on TV. We saw his shows before we took our trip. And the Girl Scout leader says to the girls, girls, if it's not to your liking, and they all go, 
change your liking. And that's one of my <laughs> slogans in my in my guidebook. If it's not to your liking, change your liking. So they were true blue and doing, you know, honoring my little little slogans without me even knowing it. And uh, that was, you know, that's pretty fun when you work really hard to, to realize you're having an impact that way. Meantime, you're, you're, you're doing these shows, which is super labor-intensive. Um, you are also going to Europe for to lead tours. Mm-hmm. You're also um, updating your guidebooks. You're traveling around now doing fundraisers for public radio stations. And you've got a family at home. And I... Um, I mean, I imagine you're away. You were away from home for for months on end throughout the year. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, when I think back on it, uh, it was tough. I mean, I was uh, I needed two lives, and my uh, you know I, I worked. A, a lot of people work hard, and it takes a toll on their families. I worked hard, uh, and it was sort of addictive to be writing a business that was rising up, and it was my dream, uh, and. Uh, it was also so enjoyable, and I I uh, I loved parenting. I I, I just I was um, married to my work as well as to my family, and in that case, I was uh, it didn't work well. <laughs> and there were demands on being Rick Steves. People needed Rick Steves for mm-hmm. a variety of reasons, and that was a big deal. In fact, my relationship with my son was was difficult for for uh, several years because. Uh, he really recognized that my public had hijacked his dad Mm. and his other friends had dads that didn't have a, quote, public. Yeah. And I've had this attitude that if you've got an, I was going to say an adoring public, but, you know, you got fans who love your work. Ricknicks. They're they're everywhere. Ricknicks, yeah. I mean, I feel like you owe it to your public to take time and talk to them and to, you know, to visit them in person and... So it's a choice you make. Hmm. I mean, I can imagine that that caused some some tension or stress uh, in your marriage with your wife. Yeah. She just was realizing, and I think her friends were helping her figure this out, that, you know, you got to stop being in Rick's shadow. Hmm. Uh, you know, she'd go to the grocery store and she'd buy the groceries and, they, and she'd sign the check and they'd go, oh, are you, mm-hmm. you, that's, you know, yeah. that Rick Steves? Right. And I'm sure that gets really old because she's stuck with the kids and she's, you know, doing all the responsible things a a parent should do. Not a mother, a parent should do. And she was doing it pretty much alone. Um, And I was doing the family thing a lot like my dad did, you know. My dad was out there being the big personality, conducting the band, uh, you know, being everybody's favorite piano technician and, and going with the concerts and and my mom was at home making sure the books worked and the kids were getting their shots and all that kind of thing. So, you know, I was, um, that was just uh, a choice I made. Hmm. And um, I don't know how else I could have done it, frankly. Um, I, I went to the soccer games and the football games and I was very, I was very uh, frustrated because I wanted to be working and I didn't want to be sitting there with the other parents watching the kids kick the ball. Um, you know, I... Uh, I, and it, it was it was a it was a difficult thing. Hmm. Now my I mean uh, my kids as adults now they're in their early thirties. We have beautiful relationship, and I'm I'm they know I I feel sad that 
uh, there wasn't two of me, and much of uh, those years were the formative years in my business, and it and we missed a lot of opportunities. On the other hand, we we did a lot of great things too. Yeah. Um, and I, I wasn't. I just don't want somebody else to dictate what it takes to be a good dad. Yeah. I had a, yeah. a little chip yeah. on my shoulder about that because I didn't feel like I needed to help the kids moved into the dorm, you know? I mean, move into the dorm yourself. You know, I'm busy. Uh, and if that's wrong, well, that's not wrong. It's just one person's assessment of what it takes to be a good parent. Yeah. Um, but I just miss the the joys, the the, the little magic moments, you know. Uh, you, you can't... I'm pretty practical about the reality that you, you can't do it all. And uh, those years are fleeting years. And you can't you can't really make it up make up for it when your kids are in their thirties when you finally slow down and you realize that cats in the cradle kind of business you know you you either do it or you don't do it when the kids are little, and I tell a lot of my I you know uh, remind a lot of my friends that you know I, I I had to make some hard choices and be real careful about that. Yeah. So so you did this first series television series with this production company for I guess five seasons, and then. Um, and then a couple of years later, you you relaunched the show as Rick Steves Europe, right? You also yeah. on public television, yeah. and this time it was your it was your show, right? Right. And this was going to be different. This was going to be the way you wanted to do it. Yep. I suppose creative people have had that, you know, where they're in a band and mm-hmm. they want to be the composer and, yeah. the, and the and the manager and and create the vision and and say what album they're going to do next. And I got to the point with Small World where it just, uh, we had different visions and we weren't enjoying the collaboration. And especially when you're making TV, if you're not having fun in the field, you know, yeah. it's not going to, the, 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 the product is going to suffer mm. and you're going to grow old because of it prematurely. I mean, it's no, f- it's hard work to be making TV in the field. And if you're not having fun doing it, I, just, I wouldn't do it. So I wanted to have fun in the field and, uh, I, and I wanted to be in, to be totally honest, I just wanted to be in complete control. Yeah. I knew what I wanted to make. Life is short. I'm spending a third of my time in Europe making TV. You see, my time in Europe is divided. It's basically a third involved with the tour program, a third involved in researching the books, and a third involved in producing the wow. TV shows. And uh, that's a big commitment. What's really remarkable to me is that a lot of people don't realize this. Is that with all the television out in the world today, a lot of people don't really make that much money from TV. The TV, in some ways, is is like a vehicle to promote other mm-hmm. things you do. And my understanding of the way your business works is that television, and 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 then you started a public radio show, which you have a podcast and radio show, and 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 all this. You go to your your web page today. There's all this free content. And my understanding is that mm-hmm. that virtually all of your revenue comes from giving tours in Europe, Rick Steves tours mm-hmm. that you no longer personally lead, but tours and books. That that is like the vast mm-hmm. majority of your revenue. It's not the TV shows. It's not the radio right. stuff. It's not the content on your website. Yeah. I think the worst thing I could do is charge for the TV show because then nobody would watch it. <laughs> people, people, people couldn't afford to run it, you know. Yeah. I mean, public television doesn't have much money. Yeah. And they have to choose. I mean, my show ran every night in Los Angeles for years. Every night in prime time. Oh, that's amazing. Because 
because Los Angeles Public Television broke away from PBS because they right. couldn't afford right. the, 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 the dues. KCET, right? KCET, yeah. And I was their, I was their favorite little guy for, for years. And it was free content for them that they liked, and they just aired it. Because it was free, and they had, they had a budget reality, and they said, well, we can do this, and it'll cost us X, or we can do this, and it'll cost us nothing, and everybody likes that, and it's free, so let's do it. So as long as my shows are good yeah. and popular and free... We can do no wrong. That's why our show, it just has wheels. And, you know, we, we work very hard. It's got legs. I mean, we've, we work really hard to make the shows so they are evergreen. And, uh, you know, and they, they get run a lot. We, we, we try to pack as much content in there so people can watch them several times and still get, get stuff out of it. And um, it's, it works quite well. I mean, it's really an interesting model because the content isn't what drives the the, the business. I mean, you know, you eventually, as you grew and grew and you had, I think you were doing, what, tours for like 30,000 mm-hmm. people a year at, by, by, by 2019 yeah. or even yeah. more? In, in a normal year, we take 30,000 people and 1,200 tours. I mean, it's just un- unbelievable. So this is, you know, and, and so the content that you offer, because you can mm-hmm. go to your website now and, and download apps that are free, right? You can go, you mm-hmm. can download free uh guides to like like uh, audio guides that is mm-hmm. really just stuff you put out there and i and i i i hope this doesn't sound cynical because i don't think this is how you think about it but it really is a, a brilliant kind of free advertisement for the things you do sell yeah <laughs> i'm honestly i measure my profit by how many trips do i impact like right now during covid I'm producing. I'm profitable. I'm not making any money, but I'm plenty profitable because we've created a program called Classroom Europe that lets teachers put together little clips from our TV shows into their own playlists to teach on a certain theme. This is free. I could charge for it, but that would complicate things and it would diminish the amount of people who could uh, use it and it would no longer be a celebration. So we spent a lot of money making this program. We spent a lot of money making the TV show. We've got every right to charge for this, but I would much rather have people run it and then say, how can he afford to do this? Hmm. And then it becomes a part of their teaching arsenal. And uh, and then people like us more. And, you know, without even being aggressive and, and calculated, you know they're going to think good about Rick Steves. When you when you started to get more visible, become when you started to become more visible and, and you know, you're on the TV show and they're presumably more people interested in buying your books and then maybe even taking mm-hmm. your tours. Did you sit down and say, okay, this is the strategy. We're going to create a travel business and we're going to do all these different things. Or or did mm-hmm. do the things that eventually happen kind of just happen haphazardly? No strategy at all. Um, you got – I always think – I kind of like this idea of in Mexico, there's a volcano that just appears. You know, <laughs> just a little mountain grows out of the desert, and then <laughs> it grows bigger and bigger, and all of a sudden it's a mountain. Didn't There was not any plan there, and that's kind of the way we grew. We, we become you know, bigger and bigger and bigger, and for me, it's I never really wanted... I got a business degree, but I never really wanted to look in the book and say, oh, now you have a COO, yeah. now you have a CFO, now you have a CEO. Um, I don't even know what that stuff is until it becomes apparent, oh, we need a guy to do this. And then they go, yeah, that's <laughs> called a, a, a CFO. Uh, you know, and it, it, we're just, we're just kind of going, oh, that's why they have that. When we come back in just a moment, why Rick didn't want the company to grow too big or too fast. And later, what happened when the pandemic brought his entire business 
to a halt. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Support for How I Built This comes from 3M, helping to protect those on the front lines every day. As the father of a healthcare worker, 3M employee Chris understood how important it was for his daughter and nurses like her to be protected during COVID-19. At the height of the pandemic, he worked hard to direct high-performing personal protective equipment to hospitals and hotspots. Hear his story at 3M.com slash improving lives. 3M science applied to life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Oliver Wyman. Believing business success is a series of small decisions punctuated by breakthrough moments. Learn how their expertise, creativity, and diversity creates breakthroughs for the world's leading companies at OliverWyman.com. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So by the late 1990s and early 2000s, Rick Steves' books and tours and TV show were doing so well that he and his small team were actually a little worried that they might be growing too fast. Oh, yeah. In fact, for years in my office, the big issue when we had our annual meetings and stuff was how do we not let growth brutalize us? Hmm. Because we are, we're a gang of collaborators, of friends, yeah. like a big family in my business. And, uh, and we're not we're not as typical. We're, we're privately held. I always say if we were publicly held, we'd have no choice. We'd have to profit maximize. But we have ideals, and it's not just making money. And we didn't want to sell our soul. We didn't, you know, we wanted to maintain who we were. And that's, I mean, I remember the, <laughs> I just remember when I used to take the checks to the bank myself, you know, yeah. there was a, not, a, not, a, not a sliver of that. Um, but um, so now we've got the power to do things. We've got the power to, you know, when, I'm, when I want to make a show, a TV show about about hunger, I dedicate a lot of time and a lot of money to go into Ethiopia and Guatemala, mm. and we finish it with, we don't have to worry about what does every dissolve cost. We make that show first class at whatever it costs, and then it has an impact. So we're just really enjoying the success we've had because of the uh, the way it lets us do a good job in the tools we use to teach the public. Rick, um, I don't think many people dislike you. I think probably nobody does. But the the rap on you, one of the criticisms of you, and you know this, is Rick Steves has ruined these like beautiful, quaint places because there are just m- masses of American tourists coming through them and mm-hmm. and they're not special anymore. There's nothing hidden. Like writing about Europe through the back door in 1982 meant one thing, but today it's like mm-hmm. every spot on earth, you could, whether it's Cinque Terre in Italy or – you know, or, 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 you know, the coast of Donegal in Ireland, wherever it is, there's some influencer mm-hmm. posing, you know, get, posing for photographs in a field, you know, a, a field of lavender in Provence or yeah. whatever it might be. Like, yeah. it's just, it, it, you know, there's, it's, it's kind of a trope, but there's some truth to it, which is everything special has kind of been ruined. Yeah. I remember there's a cartoon when it was these uh, whalers and somebody goes, quick, harpoon it before it's extinct. And uh, I thought maybe that's a little bit like me. Hmm. My job is to find these undiscovered places and uh, tell everybody about them. And, uh, you know, I've thought long and hard about this. You know, I'm, I'm the hired hand of my readers. I'm not in business to protect places that I discover. Yeah. Um, I remember once I went to an, uh, a lecture with Arthur Fromer, you know, my mentor, my inspiration in so many ways. And, and, he, and somebody said, uh, 
you know, what's your favorite place in, in Rome? And he said, I've got a favorite place in Rome. I just go there for myself. It's just, and he described it so beautifully. He says, I don't tell any about it because I just want it to be for me. And I thought, Arthur, that's not what we're supposed to do as travel writers. Sure. We work really hard to find these great places, and the very, very favorite places need to be more important than anything else shared with the public, as long as that place can handle the public. You know, some places don't want the public or they can't handle the public, and you would be wrong to promote it in a way that overwhelmed it and made everybody miserable, the locals and the tourists. But, you know, I'm not... I used to genuinely look for places off the beaten path, but I've been sort of... I've morphed into finding unique, authentic places that are accessible to the beaten path. That's what people want. And, uh, you know, Paris is by no means undiscovered, but you can go to Paris in a way that you can enjoy it without it being a tourist trap. But you know, I wonder, Rick, I mean, you've probably seen how uh, how influencers on, on social media travel around Europe, around the world. Um, and, and oftentimes they're not they're not really there to see it, but basically to be seen, seeing it, right? Like they post pictures of themselves like posing in, in this or, or in that place sometimes as, as a way of getting travel perks, right? And I mean, I mean, you've seen those kinds of posts, right? Yeah. I mean, just last year I was traveling around Europe and it occurred to me, I went to like four places in a row where there was this Instagram phenomenon, this is uh, whatever it is. And uh, I was in Muren in Switzerland and people were lining up to stand on a stump in Murin to get a photograph with the famous mountain behind them. And they're literally lining up to get this photograph. And then I go to the Cinque Terre in the Italian Riviera, and I, there's five towns. Nobody goes to Monarola. And all of a sudden, everybody's going to Monarola, and they're on the spit out in the waterfront in Monarola, and th- there's a big crowd on the spit in Monarola. And I ask my local friend, what is that? And he goes, that's the Instagram spot. Everybody goes there to get their picture. And they don't even know the name of the town, you know? Mm. And... Uh, <laughs> I'm just so thankful that I don't, you know, when I go when I go to the Louvre, I'm not putting on my shoulder pads and getting a selfie in front of the uh, Mona Lisa. I've got some serious uh, art appreciation to do. Uh, so that's a different world, and uh, those people are scrambling to make it in that world, and uh, that's fine with me, but it has nothing to do with my work as a travel writer. Hmm. This past year has been a, a really tough year for the travel industry, and I... And I, I know that um, a couple of months ago you put out an open letter basically explaining the situation for, of your business. You have had zero – basically zero revenue over the – since the pandemic shut down travel and you have had to – in order to avoid layoffs, I guess you basically have everybody on your team working 60 yeah. percent or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, we're between 60 and 70%. Everybody still gets their health care, but we're we're having to trim our sales. So how are you how are you f- paying people if you have no revenue? Well, I've for 30 years I've had revenue and and I'm I'm privately held, so I am the only stockholder. And uh, you know, if you're publicly held, when you make money one year, the way if I understand it correctly, that money is gone. You disperse it through your stockholders. But yeah. I've just been the only stockholder, so I've I've collected a lot of money over 30 successful years in a row. I mean, not that we're any any giant mega corporation, because I'm not, I, you know, I'm not interested in going public and just becoming bigger than we are. I mean, our when we we peaked in 2019, I think we we're our gross revenue was 100 million dollars with uh, with 100 employees. Unbelievable. And it's okay. I got two years that are terrible. Well, if you got 30 good years and then two terrible years, um, I can take those lumps, and uh, I owe it to my staff. I mean, they've been with me through all these successful years. I'm not going to just say, oh, now I'm not making money. You guys are all gone. 
I need to spend whatever it takes to keep my team together because we will throttle up. Will it be late 2021 or will it be 2022? I don't know, but we're going to be here. We're going to be ready. We've weathered many storms over the last 40 years as a travel company, and Rick Steves Europe will be here after the pandemic. And I know that the demand for travel doesn't dissipate. It backs up. And, uh, you know, the economy may be tough, and, uh, you know, there may be some uh, changes in how we travel, but... um, you know, there will be travel, and Rick Steves Europe will be here with guidebooks and with tours when it breaks open. And the worst thing for me to do as 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 a ethical employer would be, sorry, I'm not making any money. You guys are all unemployed now. And from a just from a smart businessman's point of view, uh, I want to have my team together. My, you know, there's something really, and I, I've been thinking about this lately, there's an intangible value of having the team together. It's like a, a baseball team or something, you know. You need that shortstop. You need that picture. You, you, you need that cleanup hitter. What do you think the future of travel is going to be like? I mean, I, I wonder about this a lot because I um, I live in California in the Bay Area, and, and I have really rediscovered this part of the country. I mean, I've, a lot of hiking, a lot of just spending time in nature and, and really discovering places that I hadn't been to and actually – Wondering, and my wife and I have talked about this, and, and sort of wondering, like, why are we, why do we travel so much every year? Maybe, maybe we should travel less. And I wonder what you think the future of travel is going to look like post COVID. Yeah, I'm pretty convinced that the essence of travel will come back. You know, Rick Steves' travel is the opposite of social distancing. You know, I, I go to uh, Paris to be kissed on the cheeks, and I go to Rome to pack into those piazzas and uh, do the passeggiata, strolling in the pedestrian boulevards, licking an ice cream cone and checking out the crowd. Mm. I go to the pubs in Ireland to uh, clink glasses with people who really believe that strangers are just friends who've yet to meet. And I think that will come back. I think it'll be, uh, it'll be incremental, but I think we are on a glide path to normalcy. I also am concerned that that the little moms and pops that make travel so fun uh, can survive this because the big businesses will survive it. But I do not want a future where everything comes to me in a cardboard box on my doorstep and where where, where every strip mall is just filled with chain restaurants. Uh, I don't want that. I don't want that in my regular life, and I don't want that in my travel life. And uh, the challenge will be, can the small mom and pops, the little entrepreneurial ventures, uh, the little passionate work, you know, uh, life work of people about their small museums that they run, will this still be standing after COVID? And uh, I hope that it will be. Rick, for a um, for a sixty five year old guy, um, you are remarkably self aware of your privilege and um, your. Um, have you talked about um, what it means to be a white man in the world and you have been pretty open about your progressive politics. You wrote a book called Travel as a Political Act. In 2009, you've updated it, um, even, I think, just a couple years ago. Do you, think, mm-hmm. do you think because you have spent so much time overseas seeing other cultures and talking to other people that it, it, it's actually made you more progressive politically? Hmm. I love how travel opens you up to the world. And I think it does make you more progressive. I, I've always been aware that culture shock is a challenge for travelers. And uh, just this last few months, I've been thinking about how 
culture shock is is a positive thing. It's the growing pains of a broadening perspective. And uh, uh, I'm I'm so aware of the gap between rich and poor. I'm so aware that that my daily latte costs uh, a day's wages for the less privileged 50% of humanity. Half of our planet is trying to live on $5 a day. I think it's so interesting how you learn about your country a lot of times by leaving at it and leaving it and, and looking at it from a distance. So this is all, to me, you know, my travel teaching has morphed. Uh, we talked about it on the very beginning. I said European travel cheap. It was just budget tricks, uh, you know. And uh, since then, it has morphed gradually, gradually, gradually over the years. And now, it is getting out of your comfort zone and gaining an empathy for people who live differently and see things differently than we do. You know, for somebody who really um, kind of started this as a a passion project, right? Um, you never, I, I can't imagine you ever anticipated getting rich off of what you do, but you did. I mean, th- th- this this is a business mm-hmm. that, that in 2019 generated $100 million a year, a staff of 100 people. I mean, um, you probably have enough money to retire several times over. Um, is money, was money ever important to you? Would it, you know, is it important to you? Do you, are you uncomfortable when I say, you know, you're a rich guy? No, when I was a when I was a kid, I wanted to get A's. <laughs> As a businessman, when you get A's by making money, uh, I I pride myself in paying my staff well and taking care of my staff and providing a, a working environment that helps people feel good about what they're doing and not just you know earning a paycheck, but 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 contributing in a positive way. And I like to make money. When I when I make money, I can do things that um, give me power to do stuff that I think is worthwhile. Yeah. Like what? You know, I like to pay the rent for my local symphony. So my symphony uh, has a tough time financially, like most symphonies. And I just thought, how about if one of your fans just paid the concert hall rental fee all year long, every year? So I've committed myself to doing that. I uh, I care about uh, homelessness uh, here. You know, I try to hi- make sure people can find an affordable hotel when they're traveling in Europe. And I know a lot of people will never see their name on a plane ticket because life is just tough for them. And, and if we've got money for traveling, we should have money to house people at, here in our country. So I bought a 25-unit apartment building. That's in, in Edmonds, Washington, right? In Edmonds, uh-huh. yeah, north of Seattle. And I thought a lot of, you know, well-off people have money as a nest egg sitting in the bank making interest. Why not take that capital and buy an apartment complex and then give it to the YWCA or some organization like that to house people. And uh, you still own it, but your money is doing something good instead of sitting in the bank. Uh, Eventually, I just gave that building to the YWCA, and now I go to sleep knowing that my hard work has resulted in the YWCA owning a 25-unit apartment complex that is housing 25 single moms, uh, in this case, people who have had problems with hard drug addiction and they were not able to be with their kids and now they can be with their kids. Do you give yourself some luxuries like when you travel do you travel first class on a flat bed? I've never paid for anything other than economy on an airplane ticket if I get bumped. You just get upgraded because of your your miles. No I don't do miles. I've never collected miles or anything like that. I just have a I don't want to try to defend it because I don't know for sure why I don't like it, but I don't bother with miles. They really, I don't like miles. Um, so when you fly to Europe, you fly in economy class? Oh, yeah. I fly way back there. And you just, somebody just sits next to you and they're like, wait, aren't you Rick Steves? I just sit there like a Norwegian Bernie Sanders with my uh, <laughs> noise reduction headphones on looking at my laptop for eight hours. How do you prevent 
people from giving you a bunch of free stuff or trying to influence your decision by making – because you, you've got to be recognized now everywhere you go. It's not like you're uh, uh, an anonymous right. – Critic, you know, right? I mean, it's, I take it personally because you got to earn your way into a Rick Steves book. You can't get in there because you gave Rick mm. a, a nice bottle of wine, or or that your cousin's already in there. You got to earn it. I owe it. I owe that to my readers. So uh, it is a constant battle, and I, uh, I, you know, I get free rooms when I travel. Nobody would charge me for a room when I go to their hotel because I send them a quarter of their business all year long. But um, I am very tuned in to the fact that I cannot let that corrupt me. If if things go south, that hotel, even if it's run by friends of mine, is out of the book. And it breaks my heart. But I have had to drop hotels run by friends of mine because it's no longer what it used to be when it earned a spot in the book. Do you, um, do you think that your audience is getting older or do you think that you are still appealing to... Mm. Like if you're, if you're a young mm-hmm. traveler today, like mm-hmm. when I was 20 and I went all over Europe... Mm-hmm. Why would you use a Rick Steves guide versus a Let's Go or a Rough Guide or a Lonely Planet? Yeah, my staff is tuned into generational changes and so on. Um, mm. I find it kind of boring. Um, <laughs> I, I, maybe it's because I'm the old generation, but um, <laughs> I want to produce content. I think if content is fundamentally helpful and if it's well-designed and if it's affordable, the format can be devised after the fact to fit the consuming habits of this generation or that generation. So is it an electronic book or a book in print? Is it an app or all that kind of stuff? I don't know. I just want to produce the content. You know, I've been, you know, our our guidebooks are the best. Before COVID hit, my publisher was so excited. He showed me the sales chart and 25 of the top 30 guidebooks published in the United States for Europe had Rick Steves on the cover. Wow. And I think that is more fundamental than what generation is using it. Hmm. I mean, what's interesting about your business, right, is that it's a it's a travel business, but it's around the name of this person, uh, Rick Steves, right? And and normally you would say, well, you know, once Rick Steves is is no longer part of the equation, uh, there's no business. But but I mean, Rick Steves is like Frommers or, or or Lonely Planet, right? It's it's you, but mm-hmm. it's something else too. It's it's actually. I mean, what's interesting to me about your business is that it can survive without without the person Rick Steves. Yeah, I've you know I've wanted to get to the point where the business could survive without me, and uh, I think we're at the point now, and I'm really happy about that. That we've got a team where the the company is viable without me. On the other hand, it's it's a shame when a company is named after a person because then you have other people that should have the the potential to be the public face of that company. But it's kind of awkward to say, you know, here's uh, John Doe who is uh, speaking for Rick Steves. It, it would be nicer if the company was just called Europe Through the Back Door and then John Doe would not be not Rick Steves. Mm. But uh, that's not a problem right now because Rick Steves is still having fun being Rick Steves. When you think about the arc of your career and what you've built, the top-selling business, uh, the top-selling travel books are Rick Steves books, hundred million dollars in revenue uh, at, at, at your peak. How much of that success do you do you attribute to how hard you worked and how how much you put into it and how much? do you think had to do with luck? Oh, I think a lot of it is how hard I work. I just, 
I've dedicated, I've basically, I've, I'm not, not at all complaining about it, but I've given my life to this business. I, I always work on Saturday. I work every night till 10 o'clock. So I'm loving my work, but not everybody can love the work the way they are. I'm blessed to love the work. I've, I've, I believe in what we're doing. I got my name on the cover. And uh, I like to be America's uh, traveling guinea pig. I like to make mistakes, take careful notes, and come home and help people learn from my mistakes rather than their own so they can have a better trip. Earlier in the conversation, um you were so candid about your family and and your personal life and um and and I understand you're you're in a new chapter there as well um that you and your wife had have divorced divorced some time ago um i guess it was, it was pretty amicable um but you now have a, a a new partner uh i think her name is Shelley who's actually a lutheran bishop and uh, it sounds like even though you know you're not traveling as much as you normally would um i mean it sounds like you're in a a really good place. Yeah. I'm so thankful. And uh, she's been able to introduce me to things that I would have never, ever taken seriously before COVID. <laughs> I've got an apron now. I cook. I know how to use the stove. I'm I'm, I'm walking dogs. Shelly's got a couple of dogs. And, you know, uh, I would have thought that'd be a deal breaker for anybody who's going to be my girlfriend. But no, these dogs are <laughs> very important part of our life. So it's totally new to me. And it reminds me there's more to life than travel, and I'm really thankful for that. That's Rick Steves, founder and owner of Rick Steves Europe. And by the way, there's one thing you might be kind of surprised to hear about Rick. He's a pretty big advocate for smoking pot. I love marijuana, <laughs> but I don't. I talk more than I smoke. Let's put it that way. Uh, it it takes it takes time to smoke marijuana. And uh, many years, my New Year's resolution is to smoke more pot. Um, and I, you know, <laughs> as resolutions go, you fail. <laughs> but uh, I've spent a lot of time and a lot of money helping legalize marijuana. I I love the idea that the nerdiest, most earnest Lutheran guy like you is is also this huge marijuana advocate too. Oh, if Martin Luther was around today, he'd be a pothead. <laughs> Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show this week. If you are not already a subscriber, please do subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to write to us, our email address is hibt at npr.org. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at How I Built This or at Guy Raz. And on Instagram, you can follow me at guy.raz. This episode was produced by Rachel Faulkner with music composed by Ramtin Arablui. Thanks also to Liz Metzger, Farah Safari, Dareth Gales, J.C. Howard, Julia Carney, Neva Grant, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is Janet Bujung Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. This is NPR. How do we reinvent ourselves? And what's the secret to living longer? I'm Anoush Zamarodi. Each week on NPR's TED Radio Hour, we go on a journey with TED speakers to seek a deeper understanding of the world and to figure out new ways to think and create. Listen now.